are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share His love. John 1, 9-13 The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. Thank you, Erica. I don't know if you know Erica and Bob, but they have a little grandson named Harrison. And one of the joys about being a church family is you get to do some years together and you get to see adults become grandparents. And then to watch these grandparents interact with their grandchildren, as I look around this room and see some others, is just a great joy to me. And especially at Christmas time, if you have that experience, to see Christmas through the eyes of a child is just one of the best things this time of year. We had our older kids' Christmas choir concert a couple of nights ago, and we decided to take the whole crew, even though it was going to push past bedtime for a couple of the youngest. And at least in our house, based on trial and error, we have figured out, you don't mess with bedtime. Keep the routine, sleep begets sleep, and so on. But we went for it, and we took everybody, and I was seriously questioning how our 20-month-old was going to sit through a choir concert. It sounded about as much fun as taking a toddler on an airplane, if you've ever had that experience, where you're walking then down the aisle and you can just tell everybody is hoping that you will not sit down next to them. (laughs) So there we were, third row, where uh, Grandpa and Grandma had saved seats. And and on this note, something I actually learned from my parents that I think is pretty good advice. I I just want to share this with you. If you're in environments like this or at church and you're wondering, where do we sit with our little kids? I want to share something with you just to interject this that is kind of counterintuitive. You might think we should sit near the back because then if our little one is going to get fussy, we've got like an easy way out and we won't be front and center and bother people. But the trouble is, if you sit in the back, especially if you're a little kid, you really can't see. And so they're going to get bored faster and fussier faster. And so the counterintuitive thing is if you have little ones, the littler they are, I think you should sit up front. It's just an idea. You can take it or leave it. But we found that works pretty well. We also point out here in this environment, you know, this might be different in orchestra hall, right? But, but we love the noise of children here. And one of our little mottos has been, you know, if if a church ain't crying, it's probably dying. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. So I just interject that in the midst of this story about being in the third row at this choir concert. And I was skeptical about how this was going to go. But the kids file in to sing, and our 20-month-old, he starts to hear the singing And he is just locked in. His eyes are wide open. His jaw is even like dropped and fallen open a little bit. He's absolutely mesmerized by what's going on. I thought, forget ever needing to go to Disney World. We're just going to take this kid to a choir concert. (laughs) 
And that's apparently all he needs. So it was really fun to, to listen to the singing, but to then watch him listen to this. And it was fun until about the 30-minute mark when his cup of Cheerios ran out. And then he started to also randomly clap in the middle of songs, and that's when Esther took the escape route and got him out of there. So today, I bring up these stories about kids because we have this wonderful reminder about what it means to be children of God. We've been making our way through the opening verses of John's Gospel, where he tells the Christmas story in quite different fashion than the more familiar narrative versions that we have in Matthew and Luke. So John starts his Christmas story by saying, in the beginning was the Word, which is a way of referring to Jesus, the Son of God, who existed eternally with God the Father and the Holy Spirit since before all creation and time. That was the first Sunday of Advent back in November. And then last week, we talked about John the Baptist, who prepared the way for Jesus, and then how Jesus made known the Father to us, how he declared and revealed the Father. And then today, the third Sunday of Advent, we're going to talk about how the world responded to Jesus, and how you and I are called to respond, landing in the latter verses then on this metaphor of being children of God. So that's a little bit where we've been, where we're going. And next week, we're going to come back. This probably rarely happens, but we're going to have one single verse for our sermon text next Sunday. We'll be in verse 14, which brings the whole thing home. But one day at a time. We especially need to be reminded of that during Advent. One day at a time. And let's take a look now at John 1, 9 as we begin. It says, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So John introduced Jesus as the light in the verses leading up to this. And later in John chapter 9, he'll say, Jesus will say about himself, I am the light of the world. And as for the world, it's a term we're going to often run into in John, that is a place where darkness has taken hold and yet the light comes, it appears, and shines through it. And what I'd most like to draw our attention to in this verse is really the descriptor of that light that's used. That is the adjective, true. I don't know if you have heard this before, but adjectives for a serious writer are not the most favorite part of speech. I had this in my memory having read a bunch of Ernest Hemingway's some years ago. And not only Ernest Hemingway, but also some other company that you might recognize as well. So Hemingway said, I've learned to distrust adjectives as I have learned to distrust certain people. And others who agreed with this sentiment would be George Orwell, 1984, An Animal Farm, or Ezra Pound, the poet, or E.B. White, Charlotte's Web, you might recognize. And then no surprise, the sharp-tongued Mark Twain who is known for saying, if you find an adjective, kill it, was his opinion. Maybe you're hearing that for the first time, and you're thinking, man, what's so wrong about adjectives? You know, and can I ever safely now use an adjective? Well, the golden rule seems to be this. Adjectives should only be used when they highlight something that the noun cannot. So if that's the case, by all means, then yes, it's appropriate to use an adjective, which is exactly what John does in writing his gospel. So we don't run into a lot of adjectives, but here we have one because 
he is highlighting something about the light, namely that it is the true light. Alethinas is the word, and it pops up all over in these important places in John's gospel. True, the word true. It means real or genuine. And some examples of where we would run into it would be John 4, the woman at the well. And Jesus says to her, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And another example would be John 6, where Jesus says, it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. That's the whole, I am the bread of life portion of scripture. And John 15 also comes to mind. Jesus says, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. He's the gardener. And here's why there is such an emphasis in John on true. Because there are other people and other institutions that will come along and they will claim to be the light. They'll claim to be the light. They'll claim to be the vine. They'll claim to be bread from heaven. But John is saying there is only one true light and that is Jesus. And he's held up as true because John knows we're going to live in this world where counterfeits will pop up left and right. And so we should not be surprised when we may see a politician come along, whether it's foreign or domestic, who does not come along on the strength of their policy or on the posture of being a public servant, but by basically claiming to be the light himself or herself whose sheer presence will be the answer to all the things that we've been waiting for. I was just reading about a guy in East Germany, because my wife is German, I try to keep up on the German news. And there's a guy in East Germany who calls himself King Peter, Peter I. It's not this one. (laughs) He's from West Germany. But there's this guy who, he and his subjects have founded the Kingdom of Germany. And you maybe saw in the news this last week, too, there were like 25 arrests across Germany and Europe, and somewhat associated to this group. They don't recognize the post-war German government. They print their own money. They print their own ID cards. They have their own flag. It's crazy. But there's about 5,000 people who consider themselves citizens of King Peter's kingdom. I want to rest assured any parents, we will not be going to King Peter's kingdom on the Germany mission trip. So you can safely send along your young adults with us. Though somebody should probably go there, I think. There is one true light, and that is Jesus. And yet alongside these definitions of real or genuine, John is also saying true means ultimate. It's the greatest expression of something. So in the Old Testament, you have manna that was literally bread from heaven. But then Jesus comes along, and he's the bread of life. The ultimate bread from heaven. And another example, Israel in Jeremiah 2 is called God's chosen vine. But then in John's Gospel, Jesus comes and he says, I am the true vine. And we are the branches who are connected to him, who are grafted in. And one more example, the word of God and the law and the prophets, the Old Testament is called a light, a light unto our feet, and that it is still today. And yet Jesus comes as the word made flesh, and what is he? He's the ultimate expression of who God is. 
So I would ask you, as we study and we dig into the meaning of words, now let's come to application. And I'd ask you, have you recognized Jesus as the true light? Or are there lesser lights in your sky? Lesser lights that are competing for your attention. Or lesser lights that you might be tempted to follow. There's that scene in A Bug's Life where there's a pair of mosquitoes that are flying by one of those bug lights. If you remember this little vignette. And the one mosquito says to the other, because then the one starts to fly into the bug light. And he says, no, Harry, no, don't look at the light. And his buddy, the mosquito, just keeps flying towards it. And he says, I can't help it. It's so beautiful. And it zaps. And you know how that ends for the mosquito. But I was thinking of that scene. And I thought, doesn't that describe me? Doesn't that describe us? We can be attracted to the very thing that will destroy us. A fake light. An imposter light. Distracting us from the truth when there is only one light that has come into the world and gives light to everyone. Well, let's go to verse 10. Keep making our way through this text. Verse 10 says, He, Jesus, was in the world... And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. As you look at those words, you see here we have Christmas and creation both mentioned. He was in the world is a description of what happens at Christmas. In the world being made through him, well that's a description of creation. Remember how we talked about God the Father is the architect and God the Son was the master builder. And yet, even though he made the world, and then he came into the world that he'd made, the world didn't recognize him. Maybe you've read about or you know, watched like a YouTube video about some of the famous musicians who have done these social experiments where they might appear and play in like a subway station or on a street corner. Joshua Bell is probably one of the most recent well-known folks who did this. He's a virtuoso violinist. And he showed up at a metro station in rush hour in Washington, D.C. And he's in like a baseball cap and a t-shirt. And he pulls out his $3.5 million Stradivarius. And he played for like 45 minutes. And he played some of the most beautiful, exceptional Intricate music by Bach and Schubert, and people just rushed by, for the most part. Very few people stopped to listen. And people with headphones on didn't even turn their head at all. They were completely oblivious. Another example would be Yo-Yo Ma, the cellist. He's done this a few times in places. There was an example this year where he showed up outside the Russian embassy, also in D.C., incognito, And he pulled out his cello and just sat up there and played just this mournful protest against the war. And nobody knew. There was one bicyclist who was whizzing by and hit the brakes and listened and figured it out and asked him at one point in between numbers, are you Yo-Yo Ma? And it was. This even happened to Mozart at the age of 22 
He was in Paris for the first time. He'd been invited to play for a party held by a duchess, Duchess de Chabot. And no one listened. Mozart wrote in his journal that he played to the table and chairs while everybody else partied on in the room next door. Jesus came into the world that he himself had made, and the world did not recognize him. So let's talk about that as well. What is meant by this term, the world, that we touched on earlier? What it doesn't mean is the cosmos or natural creation. That's not what it means. When Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, you might remember that the Pharisees are telling Jesus to tell his disciples to pipe down and be quiet. And Jesus says to them, if they keep quiet, well, then the stones will cry out. So creation knows its creator. What John means by the world, when he uses the term the world, which is to be all over his gospel, it means human beings and human affairs which are in rebellion against their creator. Human beings, human affairs. And in that sense, the world is dead set against God. The story Pinocchio which apparently experts consider the 1940s Pinocchio is one of the greatest technical films ever done by Disney. And it's experienced a kind of a renaissance this year. So in September, there was a live-action version that was released with Tom Hanks. And then just a couple days ago, there was what they call a stop-action version released on Netflix by director Guillermo del Toro. Highly anticipated. And if you know Del Toro's work, if you know some of his other films, then you know that he would put his artistic touch on this kind of movie. And I haven't seen it. I mean, it's, it's rated PG, and it's maybe family-friendly. It's maybe great. I don't know. You can, you can let me know. But what Del Toro said in an interview really caught my attention. Here was his twist on Pinocchio. He said... I really wanted to make a disobedient Pinocchio and make disobedience a virtue. That is entertainment in 21st century America. That's the world in John's Gospel. So in a couple chapters, we're going to read the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world... And my brothers and sisters, the remarkable thing is not how lovable the world is. The remarkable thing is the character of God that he would love the world in spite of the world. So much that he would send his son to die for it. As it was though at Christmas, the world did not recognize him. Except for a few. A few did. Mary, Joseph, the shepherds. Simeon and Anna, how about you? Have you recognized the true light? Or are you distracted by other lesser light? Or perhaps keeping company with the world, which in so many cases refuses to recognize him? Let's go to verse 11. Verse 11, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So in verse 10, 
he was unrecognized. Now in verse 11, he is unwelcome. When it says he came to that which was his own, what it can mean there in the Greek is that he came to his own people or he came to his own home. And so Jesus came to his own world that he created, his own home in a sense, and it didn't receive him. And likewise, he came to his own people in the context of Jesus' arrival 2,000 years ago. He comes to his own people, to the Jewish people, and they largely reject him because they are disappointed in a king that would suffer and die instead of defeating the Romans. And we still live in a world, especially our corner of the world, where you and I are parked here now, where Jesus is not only unrecognized, but increasingly unwelcome. I'll tell you about a movement afoot, both nationally and globally, in the YMCA, to see the C, the the Christian identity of the YMCA, essentially erased. There's voices within the YMCA movement that say, you know, this thing needs to be modernized and we can't be for all, we can't serve all people and still be hanging on to this Christian stuff. Which is a lie, by the way. We can absolutely welcome in everybody through these doors in the name of Jesus. And so Christ has become unwelcome in the very movement that 175 years ago was founded to proclaim his name. On the positive side, I can tell you that one reason that we intentionally make our home here in the YMCA is to help the Y retain its Christian mission and actually regain its former glory as a Christ-centered, mission-minded movement. And with the blessing and support of our congregation, this year I got to start writing my doctoral project on how the local church can help the YMCA to once again pursue the Great Commission. But certainly, that's just one example. You see other places as well, other facets of our society where Christ is not welcome. And I recognize, you know, we could fill a whole sermon with examples of this. I would much rather focus on what for me is a great consolation. Gives me joy and hope. And that is to know in this moment the gospel is expanding and exploding even in other parts of the world. Like Mongolia, where this year, with the help of Dr. Juergens, we were able to give gifts of love in the form of sheep. A place in the world where the people can relate so well to the shepherds of the Christmas story as they're coming to worship Jesus as King. Or places like Ukraine, where this year we got to fund a pastor's conference. I mean, who goes to a ministry conference in the midst of war? Well, people who have learned the power of the gospel and that in Christ there is refuge and hope that can be found in no other place and that can be found in any circumstance. Or like in the Czech Republic. I got to meet this woman this this summer at a YMCA conference in Denmark. She's not more than 25. She's a young mom. Her husband was along. Their little baby. She comes to this conference. And this woman, Sarah, is leading the national movement in the Czech Republic, bringing the hope of the gospel to young Czechs in the name of the YMCA. Don't be swayed by our own country's competing idols. 
And don't despair by our own spiritual decline. There are good things happening in the world. And let's remind ourselves there's good things happening here. And the most important thing that you or I could do in our corner of the world is to settle the question for yourself. Have I received Christ? Have I received Him? Is He welcome in my life? And once you have settled that question for yourself, then like these shepherds in the story, you get to take that news to your friends and your neighbors and your family so that they too can then answer the question for themselves. That's how the gospel expands. Well, let's go to verse 12. Verse 12, as we arrive at this part of the passage, is a hinge in what we're reading. Because we've talked about those who did not recognize him, who did not receive him. We've talked about the darkness of the world. But in verse 12, we have a shift. Let me show you how it begins. Yet, there's the hinge. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name. And this reminds us, doesn't it, that there is always a remnant No matter how dark or difficult things may get. The Lord says to Elijah, when things looked hopeless and lost. I mean, Elijah goes off into the desert and he wants to die. He prays that God will take his life. And God shows up and reminds him. He says, Elijah, I have reserved for myself 7,000 in Israel who have not bent the knee to Baal. There is always a remnant. And the strength of your faith in Christ cannot be dependent on the scale of popular opinion. But God keeps and preserves His people. And so I am wondering again, are you among those who have received Him? Are you among those who have believed in His name? Because I won't assume that's the case just because you're in church on a Sunday morning. Have you believed in his name? Not bearing some label as Christian, but receiving and believing. One writer described this kind of faith. I thought, well, what does that look like, receiving and believing? And he said, such faith yields allegiance to Jesus, trusts him completely, acknowledges his claims, and confesses him with gratitude. That's what it looks like to receive him. And then look what happens. We're going to finish the sentence now and actually the rest of the passage. So here's what happens upon that hinge. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And I want to remind you what we said two weeks ago, that the prologue is preview. So our Advent text, these first 18 verses of John 1, are a preview of all that John is going to report from Jesus' life and teaching. So this metaphor of becoming children of God, well, this is going to come up in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in chapter 3. Jesus says, Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. It's one of my favorite episodes from The Chosen, by the way, is this conversation. 
And Nicodemus says, well, wait a minute, how's that supposed to happen? Can someone return to the womb and be born a second time? He's confused. And Jesus says, no, it's not a physical birth. It's a spiritual birth. You have to be born again, Nicodemus, spiritually. That's what it means to be born of God. It is not something about your bloodline or your lineage or a human decision, but it is what God does for those who receive his Son and believe in his name for salvation. Our son Uriah, who is three, he loves to watch the video of the judge saying his new name at the adoption hearing. And then hitting the hammer, the gavel, hitting the hammer. So it's like a minute and a half video on my phone. He loves to watch it. He was just talking about last night at the dinner table as we sat there. When the judge says, the name of this child shall be Uriah John Dixon. Bam! The gavel. And in that moment, he doesn't really know this yet, but he went from foster kid to son. That is what the righteous judge does when he calls you and I his children. The most pressing question this Christmas and in your entire life is if you have become a child of God. And contrary to cliche or some tenet of religious pluralism, the Bible actually makes very clear that not everyone is a child of God. Made in his image? Yes. Made for relationship with him? Yes. Created by God? Yes. All of those things. But Jesus says in John 8, everyone who sins, that's everyone, all right? Everyone who sins, he says, is a slave to sin. And a slave has no permanent place in the family. But a son or a daughter belongs to it forever. And then I bet you might recognize this famous verse. So if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. The Bible says that there are children of God and there are slaves to sin. Now, Paul actually says children of wrath. That's the language he uses in Ephesians 2. And if we describe it as anything less than that, then we have not truly understood How sin separates us from God. The gravity of sin. If we understand it as less than that, then we have not understood our desperate need for a Savior. Or how great the love of God is for us. John is going to write in his first letter, 1 John 3.1, he's going to write, See what great love the Father has for us, that we should be called children of God. He says, and that is what we are. In the original Pinocchio, Pinocchio says, tomorrow I cease to be a puppet and I become a boy. But I say, don't wait till tomorrow. You can make it today. Have you received Jesus? And his forgiveness. 
Have you been born again and become a child of God? And if you have, what are we doing? Are we out there in the darkness of this world telling people about the beautiful light of Jesus? I'd like to lead us in prayer with these questions in mind. And if you have never received Christ before, if you have never professed your faith and trust in Him, then the words that I'm going to pray, you can make your own. And you can welcome Him today as your Savior. You can go from being slave to sin to child of God. And if you're unsure if if you have ever made that decision, then you can be sure today. Scripture tells us you can be sure of your salvation and in prayer you can seal it today. If that's you this morning, we're going to bow our heads in just a moment and I'm going to lead us in prayer and I'm going to invite you to also stand. Stand as we pray and make that decision. And if you have already trusted your life to Christ, then I'm going to lead us in prayer for your witness that your words and your actions and your entire life would shine with the love of Jesus so that through you, others will come to know him. Let's bow our heads together and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you that prayer is just an opportunity to talk with you. And opening your word, as we've done this morning, is a chance to hear from you. And Lord, there are perhaps some among us, maybe who have attended church and have some years under our belt, but Lord, this is new. This idea that you invite us to be your sons and daughters, to be called your children. Lord, that your love would flood into our life like a light. This is different. This is new. And we want to respond this morning by receiving you. And so if that's you, all our eyes are closed here as we continue to pray. I just invite you to stand where you are. If you want to make this prayer your own, receive Jesus as the light of your life, the forgiver of your sins, your hope and your future for all eternity, then you can stand where you're at. Now lead us in this prayer. Lord Jesus, I confess that I need you. I have been far from you. Maybe, Lord, I haven't realized how far it's been. But today, I receive your gift of love. I receive your forgiveness. And I take my place by the blood of Jesus as your beloved son or daughter. I commit my life to you, Lord. And Lord, for those who have made that decision, we also pray that you would embolden our witness. Lord, that in a dark world, that we would shine brightly with the love of Christ. And Lord, maybe there's a neighbor, there's a friend at work, or a friend at school, somebody in our extended family, Lord, and 
And you just bring them to mind now as somebody who needs to know, somebody who needs to hear about this light and receive good news. And I pray, Lord, that you would send us out here with your love and your message on our lips. Let's all rise to our feet now as we prepare to sing and close in worship. And Lord, we offer these closing lines of song as an anthem of praise to you this morning. We thank you for this season of Advent and how you have been at work in our hearts and minds this morning. We give you praise and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.